Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. Uh, we thank you for the rain. Um, pray that uh, you would be merciful to those who are coming in this morning and keep them safe on the road. Um, we pray that you would be with us as we go through this next section of Leviticus, that you give us eyes to see and hearts to understand what you would have for us this morning through this cleansing ritual for lepers. May Christ be exalted. May we see our need for Him. And um, may it drive us to the foot of the cross where we need to remain in thankfulness and repentance and and humility um, because of what you've done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that in His name. Amen. We're in chapter 14 of Leviticus. We're actually moving pretty quickly through this book. I know it doesn't feel that way, but uh, we're moving pretty, pretty good clip. Um, do you remember uh, the last couple of weeks we've talked about in chapter 13, what were we dealing with? Lepers. And what, did, what, is the, what have we seen as the theme in regard to lepers, what, what is the holiness? holiness. It's a, we're in the cleanliness code. And what we're dealing with, ritual cleanliness. How can uh, an Israelite be in covenant fellowship with God at the tabernacle and in covenant fellowship with the other members of the community? And so we've gone through a series in chapter 13 of the priest looking at someone's skin condition and determining discerning based on the principles given in the the statutes under this code whether the person is clean or unclean whether they can um, whether they can be in fellowship with God and fellowship with the community right the priest makes that determination through his discerning of the law as applied to the facts we look at the diagnosis of ritually unclean or clean for skin leprosy and now in chapter 14 we look at the, the process or the ritual for restoration for those who are healed of their disease. What happened if someone was declared unclean? What were the, what were the consequences of that for leprous disease? They were put out camp. That was one thing. What's it, what? They were loose clothing as in, uh, as in a state of the morning. There were signs of being in a state of the morning. They had uh, the, the hair was unkept, the clothing was was loose or shaggy or whatever it was, and they and then the the third thing was they had to warn other people and say unclean. They had to declare their status to other people. There's mourning. There's a declaration of status. I cannot be in front of God. I cannot be with other people unless I make them unclean, ritually unclean, and they live in that status outside of the camp praying for healing, right? They're cut off. It's this constant state of mourning and they pray for healing. And sometimes, God granted. To be restored involved a gradual process of three stages of purity. We're going to see this in chapter 14. There are three stages of purity. After the first ritual, the patient, we'll just call him the patient, uh, was pure enough to re-enter the camp, but they were in a um, 
a probation period. And we'll see how that works. And after the second ritual, the probation period, they were pure enough to go to the tabernacle. And after the third stage, they were pure enough to, be, to fully re-enter the community. And, and we've seen kind of that three-stage approach before uh, in chapter 12. Remember, with the woman who was through the birth, uh, uh, the blood of birth, she became unclean and, and the three stages of purity there. It's the same kind of idea. Doing an action three times underscores its importance. Okay? It's, it's the a Hebrew idea of, of, um, of importance through repetition. All right, we're going to read it a little bit at a time here because uh, we're going to be going through verses 1 through 32. So <clears throat> rather than take it all at once, let's look at uh, verses 1 through 7 in chapter 14. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then, if the case of leprous disease is healed, and the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live, clean birds, and cedar wood, and scarlet yarn, and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. So this is the first stage. This is the first part of the ritual. What's the first step? What's the first thing that has to happen? Brought to the priest. Where does the priest go? The priest goes to him, right? How does he know? How does the priest know to go out? Grapevine? Got a little back music? You heard it through the grapevine? Remember we talked about how there are family members that could stay with them outside the camp, but in order to go back into the camp, they had to go to this ritual. Right? If they're unclean or, or some kind of cleansing ritual, not necessarily this one, but the, some kind of cleansing ritual to get back into the camp. So there could be communication going back and forth, what's going on outside the camp to what's going on to, to the priest on the inside of the camp. So the, Word gets the priest, hey, we think he's clean. Right? The, the white spot or the spot is fading. Or whatever other diagnostic material that we used before in chapter 13, it looks like it's healing. It's brown hair, black hair coming in rather than the yellow that it has been. You know, whatever. And so the priest goes out to him. Then what happens? The priest looks at it and says, clean. Right? It looks good. Then what do they do? They go through a cleansing ritual. A cleansing ritual. What is the first thing he does? Live birds. What does that mean? Obviously, birds would be alive, right? Why would it... 
That's the English translation. That's the English translation is live. Some, and just to clarify, some people would translate that wild birds. Uh, because obviously they're alive. You've got to kill one of them. And where do they kill it? Over some water, over a pot that's near uh, some fresh water, some kind of cistern kind of thing going on. The blood drains into this pot of fresh water. Um, and here, at this moment, we see the two main cleansing agents of the sacrificial system brought together. Water and blood. Right? The bird is killed, the blood is drained. The sacrificed bird has its blood drained in the water. And there it is, the mixture of water and blood. What does a priest do next? Two birds. One is now dead. What happens? After doing what? He baptizes everything in the water and the blood. What is he putting in the water and the blood? The live bird, which he'll eventually release in the field. The live bird. What else? Hyssop, and we've seen, and we'll see, we'll see hyssop later on in chapter 16. Hyssop, and we've seen it before, is, is kind of a brushy plant that they use to sprinkle and splatter blood. We saw it in, uh, in the consecration of the tabernacle. Uh, it, it's kind of good for liquid blood to be able to splatter that. So there's that. What else? Scarlet yarn? And cedar wood. Why? What an odd thing to add into the mix. Scarlet yarn is red. Cedar wood is red-ish. Nobody knows why they use these. In other places, they're, they're, they seem to be used as cleansing agents or, or, or whatever. But some of the smart folks think that because of their red character, it brings out the, um, the principle of the blood being an agent of cleansing. So they dip this cedar, they dip this yarn and, and the hyssop in this bloody water from the bird. Um, all right. It seems to emphasize the atoning aspect of the blood, having the cedar and the yarn, but that's, again, speculation. Um, one of the smart folks commented that the red items here would underscore the purifying action, much like using a red pen can underscore a written message like, you know, your professor grading your final underscores messages with the red pen. Similar kind of idea possibly here. Uh, what does a priest do with this mixture? He sprinkles it how many times? And why would he do that? That's crazy. Why seven times? Seven number of completion. We see that again and again and again. He sprinkles himself. He covers him ritually with this mixture, this blood and water mixture. Um, then he lets the wild bird or the live bird go in the fields outside of the camp. Uh, one of the issues of, of saying live versus wild, if it's a wild bird, where is it naturally going to go? If it's your pet parrot, where would it go? 
back to its perch in your tent, right? If it's a wild bird, it's going to fly naturally out to uh, where it came from. What does this symbolize? Why, why do this? A scapebird. Similar to what? A scapegoat. And we'll see that in chapter 16, the whole idea of the bird bearing, in some thought, bearing the, the uncleanliness of leprosy for the patient and it, ta- it takes it out. That's one theory. Another one is, and I thought this was interesting, if it's a wild bird, he's going back to his community. And it prefigures what's going to be happening to this guy when they're done at the end of this ritual. That he goes back to the place where he belongs. Alright. What's the second stage here? Let's look at verse 8. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water and he shall be clean. And after that he may come into the camp but live outside his tent seven days and on the seventh day he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard, and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair and then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and he shall be clean. And on the eighth day... He shall take two male lambs without blemish and one ewe lamb, a year old without blemish, and a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil and one log of oil. And the priest who cleanses him shall set the man who is to be cleansed and these things before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. All right. Let's look at uh, what's going on here. What must the patient do before entering the camp? What's he got to do? He's got to shave all the hair on his body. Um, he's got to wash his garments, shave the hair off his body, and take a bath. Why do this? What is that showing? Cleansing. You never feel so clean when you have. Um, sometimes I will shave my face and shave my head and Tammy goes, whoa, that's too much skin. All that's left is my bushy eyebrows and my monobrow. And so I've, I've toyed with the idea of walking in one day just to see the look on her face. It's a clean feeling. It's very clean. And it's a symbol to everyone else. That it's, it's a cleansing thing. He's in a state of cleanliness. It's a probationary period. He's to be in the camp, but not in his tent. Why? Why do you think? Why not? Okay. There's a, there's a sense in which there, it's kind of a waiting period like we saw the previous probation periods. Make sure that now he's completely shaved. We'll see anything that comes in uh, to see if he's truly clean. It's a possibility. Other thought on this is that he's still so fresh out of it that coming into his dwelling place might contaminate it. 
or my, if there, something does come up, then his tent is now contaminated. The place where he lives becomes contaminated. So some of the smart folks have suggested that the, the, um, that he'll live in a temporary shelter during the time. And the idea is to keep any impurity from getting into where he lives. And so just the time when he starts itching from the hair growing back, he's to do what? Shave it again. Shave it again, wash himself and his clothes, and this prepares him for the eighth day where he brings what? Incidentally, before we get to that, what is significant about the eighth day? Have we seen that in any other situations? Circumcision. Circumcision, kind of an important day. What else? Eighth day. Do you remember in the consecration of the priests, how they held off and were in the open area of the sanctuary for seven days and then on the eighth day that they started the sacrifices again. Um, we'll see this later on, the Feast of Booths, the eighth day is a pretty significant day. This is the day which marks the pinnacle of these purification rites, the eighth day. It's on this day that the patient is restored to full fellowship as a covenant member. So let's look at it. Verse 12. <clears throat> And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering along with a log of oil and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall kill the lamb in the place where they kill the sin offering and the burnt offering in the place of the sanctuary. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the lamp, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest shall take some of the log of oil, and pour it into the palm of his own left hand, and dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand, and sprinkle some of the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And some of the oil that remains in his hand, the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, on the top of the blood of the guilt offering. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand, he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed. Then the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. The priest shall offer the sin offering to make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. And afterward he shall kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be clean. You have here in the final stage every major atonement offering that can be made is present. The guilt offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the, and the grain offering is there as well. All three main atoning sacrifices are present. Why? Why do you think that is? First of all, why a guilt offering? That seems odd, doesn't it? I mean, the guy just was sick. What's he guilty of? Effects of the curse, maybe? He's been pronounced clean. Why have this offering for a disease? Maybe because it has uh, an immunity effect. 
meaning he could be guilty, even though he has the disease which was afflicted upon him and wasn't his fault, if he doesn't deal with it promptly and effectively, he affects other people. Some idea there. Some idea there. Uh, we don't know, really, when it comes down to it. Um, some, some of the theories are that uh, he may have been guilty of some type of sin before his sickness was diagnosed against the holy objects of the tabernacle. Maybe he's part of the uh, class that can eat um, some, of the, uh, some of the meat that comes off of the sacrifices. Another thought is that it was some sort of reparation because God and the people have lost his time and industry in the community. He hasn't been contributing to the community. There's been... Um, uh, another was um, that it was for unpaid tithes. It's kind of a you know, about, Baptist idea. What? what about, I'm sorry. What about the story of Job where his sickness wasn't brought upon by, a, by any sin, but in the end of that book, God does point out that Job is not uh, sinless. And he's not... I mean, he's guilty of pride. He's guilty of um, things that that kind of the sickness brought out. So that That's interesting. Yeah. So while while this person is in the throes of leprosy, you right, and there could have been some heart issues going on. With, I don't trust God. Why would you do this to me? He can't be good if he does this to me. Maybe that's a good thought. I hadn't thought about that. Um, most likely, though, most of the guys will rest on that this is part of the cleansing, a cleansing agent, because the blood is used. How is the blood used here? What does it do with it? Have we, and, and have we seen this before? Consecration of priests, and what does he do with it? There's a sprinkling. Uh, that's, the lobe of the right ear. Lots of right. Lots of right. The, well, this is the dominant. The, the, you know. Same as the priest. So you got the lobe, the thumb, and the toe. And we, when we went through that with the priesthood. What did we see? What did we see? No. It's like from head to toe. From head to toe. So it's a mer- like a, a visual merism. This is the whole body. The whole man is being covered by this atoning blood. What does that communicate to the man or woman? And what, interestingly, it'd also be a woman. Think of that too. Um, and what does it communicate to the community? Even though it was just one spot on one portion of his body that he's entirely clean. It's like he's an entirely new person joining their, their group. And he's 100% clean. That's right. It assures them you can be around this person. He's been declared clean. He's been atoned for. He's covered by this atoning blood. And then he does something else. With oil. What happens there? By the way, a log of oil, just in case you're wondering, is usually a cup and a half to two and a half cups of oil. I don't know why they call it a log. Sometimes it's translated. I just don't get it. But that, it's, it's a log of one and a half, two and a half cups. And he takes it and he does what with it? Palm of his own left hand. Palm of his own left hand and does, and does the, the same thing. The ground for, the basis for applying the oil as a merism on the man all the way down again is the atoning blood. 
and on top of it is oil. What does that say? Oil here has a connotation of unity, of wholeness, of acceptance, of favor, blessing. Notice the picture. The ground of it is first the guilt offering, the atoning offering. And on top of that is blessing, favor, unity, wholeness. Right? From head to toe. Does it also have a connotation of cleanliness? Yeah, the, the whole thing, the whole thing. The same way of blood, but right, it's the, sure, sure. And, and what does he do next? He takes the remainder of the oil and anoints him from the head down. And it's, what does that communicate to him? What does that communicate to the community? He's in favor with God again, right? This is, this is a oil of blessing. The oil of gladness, you know, the kind of idea, the, the pictures that we have with oil in the Old Testament. Again, he's going from mourning to rejoicing. He's being restored. And the ground of it, underneath it all, is the blood and the blood and water, right? Okay. I don't know if you're seeing any pictures here. I'm kind of, kind of I know it's kind of secretive. It's a visual merism. He is clean in his entire being. Um, full and complete restoration happens between Yahweh and the person, and that's what's being signified by these actions. All right, the final act for the priest, and Grant already mentioned it, the final act for the priest is to make a sin offering and a burnt offering along with a grain offering. And these are the standard sacrifices of the community. As a restored member of the community, he can make those sacrifices. Right? He's in the tabernacle now. He's in the place where you make sacrifices. These are the standard ones. First, what's a sin offering for? Generally speaking, what does it say? Starts with an A, ends with atonement. Okay, yes. Atonement. The sin offering is for atonement. The burnt offering we've seen before is a, a general recognition of my, of my sinful nature. Please accept me. There's an homage to God, a, a, an acceptance. Also, the burnt offering is used as a means of thanksgiving. I would think a guy in this situation, or a lady in this situation, would be very thankful that they're being restored. So there's a burnt offering, of course, that is coupled with the grain offering of consecration. So you have the whole community seeing this picture, this guy's being restored, and he's taking part in and able to do something he hadn't been able to do outside the camp, which is atone for my sin, accept me, thank you, here he is. What offering is not mentioned here? The peace offering. But he can now, right? He's completely restored. And what's remaining is peace offering of fellowship, of thanksgiving before God for being fully restored. Once these offerings are completed, the person, the patient, is fully restored to fellowship with the community and more importantly with Yahweh. Alright, verses 21 through 32. This is interesting. Uh, tell me what you see. 
But if he is poor and cannot afford so much, then he shall take one male lamb for a guilt offering to be waived to make atonement for him and a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for, for a grain offering and a log of oil and also two turtle doves or two pigeons, whichever he can afford. The one shall be a sin offering and the other a burnt offering. <clears throat> and on the eighth day he shall bring them for his cleansing to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the priest shall take a lamb of the guilt offering and the log of oil and the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord and he shall kill the lamb of the guilt offering and the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot and the priest shall put, pour some of the oil into the palm of his own left hand and shall sprinkle his right finger with his right finger some of the oil that is in his left hand seven times before the Lord. And the priest shall put some of the oil that is in his left hand on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot in the place where the blood of the guilt offering was put. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed to make atonement for him before the Lord. And he shall offer of the turtle doves or pigeons whichever he can afford one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering along with a grain offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for him who is, to be, who is being cleansed. This is a law for him in whom is a case of leprous disease who cannot afford the offerings for his cleansing. What's the difference? Why go another 11 verses? What's the difference? There's no goats. The size of the offering. In fact, you have less expensive animals. You have a third of the, um, what is it, of the oil that's being used. You see, go ahead. The animals that are, that are used are less expensive and the grain, you're right, is a third of what is normally required. Is this the first time we've seen this, this provision for the poor? No. So the difference is the size of the ingredients used. Is there any other difference? Is he not as clean? Is he in a second area of the camp because he's not quite got enough blood to do the thing? No. The provision he makes for the poor accomplishes the same thing. It's just he's made a gracious allotment for those who can't afford what is an otherwise an incredibly expensive process for them. There may be a difference in the value of the offering required, but the result is the same. The patient is fully restored through the use of the water and blood. All right. There are a lot of ways to go with this. You have a dumb question. Okay. So, now that Christ has come and God doesn't want to sacrifice an animal if he wants a clean heart, etc., etc., is there any ap spiritual application to the less offerings because you're poor? Like, maybe like a mental disability? Like, I don't know that I would necessarily jump to that conclusion, but... I mean, I think that that's an interesting thought. Uh, I don't think we're given any kind of 
direct statement on that. But but it's an interesting thought. I think in other situations, I, where I have to come down on is God is good and gracious, and I just leave it to Him because I I don't. There's not a specific statement on that. Um, so I don't want to I don't want to do an origin and kind of pull pull from that an entire doctrine of. Well, that's not Calvinism. That's uh, Alexandria School. But, um, but anyway, I I don't know. I, I think it certainly underscores the principle that God is gracious, and um, and we can trust Him. There are lots of ways to go with this. I mean, there's all kinds of elements here. But the thing that struck me the most was the use of both blood and water to cleanse the leper. Both agents of cleansing are used to to get this guy restored because both are needed, right? It's a big deal. Uh, a leprous disease uh, it was a very significant thing in the cleanliness code. We spent, you know, a, a good chunk of time on it. And and that's because it's it's dwelt on in Leviticus. The leper here the picture of one rightly mourning his condition. He he knows where he is. He's rightly mourning it. Um, he rightly declares his status to others who are in a state of ritual cleanliness, not wanting to infect them. He rightly is there. He's outside of the of the camp. Um, he's cut off from community. He's alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and he's a stranger to the covenants of promise. He's cut off from right communion with Yahweh. He has no hope and is without God in the world. He rightly assesses his condition as unclean. He displays his condition through the signs of mourning. He proclaims his condition to those who come in contact with him. Well, you see the picture there, right? Spurgeon says it this way. When a man sees himself to be altogether lost and ruined, covered all over with the defilement of sin, and no part of and no part free from pollution, when he disclaims all righteousness of his own and pleads guilty before the Lord, then he is clean through the blood of Jesus and the grace of God. Hidden, unfelt, unconfessed iniquity is the true leprosy. But when sin is seen and felt, it has received its death blow. And the Lord looks with eyes of mercy upon the soul afflicted with it. Nothing is more deadly than self-righteousness. Or more hopeful than contrition. Think of how bizarre it would be. you got a guy with leprosy going, I'm okay. Give me a hug. Right? How bizarre that would be. That's self-righteousness. <laughs> How bizarre that is. And yet, he gives grace to the humble. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart, the psalmist says. And the hope of the, of the contrite heart lies in the sufficiency of the Savior. Look at how John describes Christ in chapter 5 of his first letter. He says um, in verse 6 there, This is he who came by water and blood, 
Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. You recall that Christ was baptized in water and He was crucified where He bled, right? The, the idea here that John is uh, capturing is a picture of Christ's active obedience through baptism, taking on that role for us, and His passive obedience in uh, the Passion of the Cross. You also recall that blood and water sweat out of Him in Gethsemane. Right? John brings that out in his Gospel. You remember at the cross that uh, when He was stabbed in the side with a spear, blood and water flowed. Right? John brings that out in his Gospel. And he's tagging off of that here. Um, F.F. Bruce uh, shines some light on this, on this uh, idea of blood and water in Christ in, in his commentary on 1 John. He says, At the time of the writing of 1 John, the apostle was dealing with a, um, a heretic named Serenthus who taught that uh, at the baptism of Christ, the Holy Spirit entered the man Jesus, the, the, the Christ Spirit, entered the man Jesus. And that's how he fought sin. That's how he did all... You know. But at the crucifixion, the Christ Spirit left the man Jesus so the Christ Spirit would never die because that's crazy. Uh, and so the man Jesus dies on the cross. Uh, John counters that by saying, this is who came by water and blood. Not water only, but water and the blood. John responds as an eyewitness that Jesus, he called, whom he called the Son of God in verse 5 of this chapter, um, is fully human and came by the water and the blood. The one baptized was the one crucified. And anything less is heretical even if the one saying it has big Texas hair and a Miss America smile. The water and the blood. And if she happens to be preaching in the big church down in Houston somewhere, that also adds to the discredibility. Yes? So in other words, water is the cleansing agent. It cleans, baptism, etc. Blood is the life. It's the life. The life is in the blood. So you've got clean life. You've got water both. Life. Yeah, you've got both. There's the, there's the cleansing agent of water and the cleansing agent of blood. Um, the, the, the water cleaning, washing, the blood covering, there's expiation and propitiation, if we want to use the $10 words. It's the, uh, the, the cleansing of sin through the water, the obedience, and, and the taking away of wrath of God for sin and, and the sacrifice of the blood. So you have both in Christ, and it speaks to His humanity and His deity. Um, I think... However, that there's also something else going on. Um, why would John use, and, that, and that's why I think he uses the terms water and the blood. Why, would he, why wouldn't he say, yeah, he was baptized and he died? By using water and the blood, he also speaks to, I think, the Levitical system of the two cleansing agents used. He's sufficient. There's no deficiency in his atonement. He's sufficient. He's, 
the embodiment, the personification of the water and the blood, the two agents that were used symbolically in Israel are personified in Christ and that's what he gives in his, uh, in his work on the cross. Consequently, the author of Hebrews says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And he confirms his restoration of the contrite sinner to unity and wholeness by means of the oil of his spirit. When he leaves, I send the comforter to you, I cover you as a, as a guarantee of our inheritance, right? Until we acquire possession of it, there's the oil that is, that is applied to the cleansed person confirming wholeness, confirming unity um, before God and, and among the covenant brothers and sisters. 1 John 5, 7 and 8 says, For there are three that testify the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. The grounding for applying the oil was the blood atoning sacrifice that was applied to the ear, thumb, the toe, covered the whole person. And then the oil of unity and wholeness is applied on the, on the ear, the thumb, and the toe. In the same way, Christ's sacrifice covers us completely and sufficiently, and we are given His Spirit um, to, uh, to confirm the unity that we have with him and with each other. So, I mean, there are other ways to go. I mean, we, we talk about shaving all the hair off and really what that means. But I, I think the thing that struck me the most is using both uh, cleansing agents in the ritual and describing Christ in those terms. I think that's pretty, pretty cool. Any other comments? Yeah. Um, I can't, couldn't help as you were talking about the ritualistic nature of you know, the wool and the hyssop and all that stuff. Couldn't help me think of how the world twists stuff like that, you know. In school, we studied Macbeth and those two witches at the beginning, double over toil and trouble. They're putting all this stuff in this cauldron and spinning it. And there's all these things in movies that just take this idea of <clears throat> putting all this stuff kind of in a cauldron and, and making it. They're taking what God used as good as a cleansing agent that all had. Um, spiritual application and meaning and they're twisting it for something bad. And so, like reading this and seeing through New Testament eyes what God's real purpose is for holiness, unity, and to pull out God's graciousness gives this stuff true meaning. And it, I think it helps us kind of block out all that junk that we see because you, you, you read about this ritualistic thing and you're like, no, I don't... I don't it kind of has a bad taste in our mouths, mm. but it's not bad. This is good. Yeah, there's not good there's not good. there's not some magical property of using cedarwood and and scarlet yarn and hyssop right. in this. It's a it's a type and a shadow of the one to come. All the law and the prophets speak of me, Jesus said, and we find the key to interpreting these things in in relation to him. There there wasn't ever in view some magical property with any of this. Um, okay, any, any other comments? Okay. Well, I'm going to be very clear. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that yeah, in your scripture we have a testimony to your goodness and your graciousness to we poor sinners who bring nothing to the table. 
that the contrite heart that we need to come before you is your sacrifice granted by you and we thank you for your grace to us may you grant us hearts that want to image and reflect your grace to our brothers and sisters and to a world around us that we wouldn't um, hold on to debts that we are owed that we would be freely broken um, of our sin to each other and that we would be quick to repent and try to restore unity and wholeness because of what Christ has done. We want to look like Him. Pray that as we continue uh, to worship this morning that you would be with Philip as he takes the, the pulpit that he preaches what you would have him preach and that we hear what you intend for us to hear and that it wouldn't just be words, that it would affect us because it comes from you and your word and that your word is quick and powerful and alive and discerns where we need to repent and where we need to be restored. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for this in the name of Christ. Amen.